All Bones Considered, podcast number 13, May 2020. On the tube, Dave Garraway, Anne Francine, Edie Huggins, Sheila Allen Stevens. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so to learn about some folks from Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill that you might know from television. Dave Garraway, the original host of the Today Show. And Francine, who made her name in cabaret performances but spent a year on television with a comedy that starred Barbara Eden. And two pioneering African-American newswomen from Philadelphia, Edie Huggins and Sheila Allen Stevens. Dave Garraway was one of the first broadcasters to figure out that television was a cool medium, and he took advantage of it. Anne Francine was a mainline debutante who made her name in cabaret, but was also on the stage, in movies, and on television. Edie Huggins and Sheila Allen Stevens were two out-of-towners who became well-loved members of the Philadelphia broadcast team. We will hear about all four in this May 2020 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. In the 1950s, people were still figuring out how television worked and should work. It was different from radio and very different from motion pictures and the theater. Broadcasters in Chicago were among the first to grasp the concept of television being a cool medium later described as so by Marshall McLuhan. Unlike the movie screen or theater, people on television were just a few feet away from you and they were talking to you personally. The stentorian tones of radio or stage quickly pushed people away. I grew up in Chicago during this period. I have many television memories. Dr. Frances Horwich created the Miss Frances character for her Ding Dong School. Bert Hillstrom fathered Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. Don Herbert amazed us as Mr. Wizard. And Larry Harmon created a broadcasting empire overseeing Bozo the Clown, his alter ego's image in the nationwide television franchise that enjoyed its greatest success in Chicago. Fraser Thomas and Garfield Goose, Uncle Johnny Coons, Ned Locke and Lunchtime Little Theater, Tutan Baker and One Meatball. So many memories. While we kids were relishing these classic shows, the grown-ups were attracted to more erudite television announcers like Studs Terkel, Hugh Downs, and Dave Garraway. David Cunningham Garraway was born in Schenectady, New York in 1913. His family had moved 13 times by the time he reached 14 before settling in St. Louis. 
where he attended Washington University, earning a degree in abnormal psychology. Dave worked as a Harvard University lab assistant and as a salesman, but he was not very successful. He decided to try his hand at radio. Garraway started at NBC as a page in 1938. There was a class there for announcers. He graduated 23rd in a class of 24. He landed a job at Pittsburgh radio station KDKA in 1939, where he was known as the roving announcer, filing reports from a hot air balloon, a U.S. Navy submarine in the Ohio River, and from deep inside a coal mine. He earned the reputation of being willing to travel anywhere to get a good story. But after two years, he left for Chicago. When the United States entered World War II, Garraway enlisted in the Navy. And while stationed in Honolulu, he hosted a radio show when he was off duty. He played jazz records. He reminisced about the old days back in Chicago. After the war, Garraway worked as a disc jockey at WMAQ in Chicago, also organizing jazz concerts, creating a jazz circuit of local clubs in 1947. His fellow disc jockeys voted him the nation's best in the 1948, 49, and 51 billboard polls. Garraway was introduced to the national television audience in June 1949 when he hosted the experimental musical variety show Garraway at Large, telecast live from Chicago. It was carried by NBC until June of 1951. His relaxed, informal style when on the air became part of his trademark. New York Times reviewer Richard F. Shepard wrote, He does not crash into the home with the false jollity and thunderous witticisms of a backslapper. He is pleasant, serious, scholarly-looking, and not obtrusively convivial. On television, Garraway was known for his bow tie and his horn-rimmed glasses and his sign-off, an upraised palm simply saying, peace. Along with Arthur Godfrey, Arlene Francis, Steve Allen, and Jack Parr, Garraway was one of the pioneers of the television talk show. Earlier radio and television voices spoke with an authoritative announcer's intonation, resembling public oration. Garraway was one of the broadcasters who introduced conversational style and tone to television beginning some broadcasts as though the viewer were sitting in the studio with him. For example... Good morning to you. And how are you about the world this morning? Let's see what shape it's in. There's a glimmer of hope here. Missiles, anti-missiles, and electronic devices that might make anti-missiles... missiles... ineffective. I think I better try that again. Because it's true, it's important, and it's complicated. And all of those things you, you have to get these days. When is the last time you heard a newscaster say, and how are you about the world today? Let's see what kind of shape it's in. There is a glimmer of hope. In 1951, legendary pioneering NBC president Sylvester Pat Weaver, father of actor Sigourney Weaver, chose Garraway as the host of his new morning news and entertainment experiment, The Today Show. He was joined by news editor Jim Fleming, and announcer Jack Lascouli when the show debuted on Monday, January 14, 1952. It was initially panned by the critics, but Garraway's style attracted a large audience that enjoyed his easygoing presence early in the morning. 
His familiar co-host was a chimpanzee with the puckish name of J. Fred Muggs. This didn't hurt his congenial manner, but his concurrent seriousness in dealing with news stories and ability to clearly explain abstract concepts earned him the nickname The Communicator. It eventually won praise from critics and viewers alike. By the way, in case you are curious, as of 2018, J. Fred Muggs was living a comfortable retirement in Florida with his television girlfriend, Phoebe B. Beebe. They are both in their late 60s. Garraway took today to various locations during his tenure. Paris in 1959, Rome in 1960, car shows, technology expos, plays, movies, and aboard an Air Force B-52 for a practice bombing run. Through television, Garraway gave viewers access to a variety of people, politicians, writers, artists, scientists, economists, and musicians. Garraway's laid-back demeanor on TV hid his struggle with depression. Toward the end of his professional career, he began to have disagreements with staff members. Some days, Garraway would disappear in the middle of the Today broadcast, leaving colleagues to finish the live program. When Garraway's second wife, Pamela, died of a prescription drug overdose in early 1961, Garraway sank into a deeper emotional malaise. In late May 1961, Garraway resigned, announcing his intention to leave today, either at the end of October, when his contract was finished, or sooner if possible. He wanted to spend more time with his children. And on June 16, 1961, television's communicator, Dave Garraway, said goodbye to the morning show that he helped pioneer. After leaving today, Garraway returned to television on National Educational Television, remember NET, the forerunner of PBS, with a science series called Exploring the Universe in late 1962. He appeared sporadically on other television programs without achieving the success and recognition levels that he enjoyed on today. He largely remained out of the public eye for the rest of the 1960s and 70s, although he did emerge for today anniversaries. Garraway was married three times, and he had three children. The first marriage was to Adele Dwyer, whom he married in 1945. The couple had a daughter, Paris, before divorcing the following year. In 1956, he married actress and ballerina Pamela Wilde, Wilde died of a prescription drug overdose on April 28, 1961. One of Garraway's hobbies was astronomy, and during a tour of Russian telescopes, he met his third wife, astronomer Sarah Lee Lippincott, whom he married in February 1980. They settled down in the Philadelphia suburb of Swarthmore. He attended astronomy symposia at Swarthmore College and spent his spare time at Sproul Observatory. Garraway was also an automobile enthusiast. One of his hobbies was collecting and restoring vintage luxury and sports cars. He was especially fond of his 1938 Jaguar SS100, which he also raced in his spare time. He was featured in several automobile commercials, including the commercial for the first Corvette in 1953 and the Ford Falcon in 1964. In 1981, Garraway underwent open-heart surgery, a result of which he contracted a staph infection. On January 14, 1982, Today broadcast its 30th anniversary special, 
which featured all the important living former and current staff members. Garraway, who had recently undergone rehab for an amphetamine addiction, appeared to be cheerful and in good spirits during the show. He also gave every indication that he would be present for the show's 35th anniversary in 1987. A few months later, however, he began suffering complications from the infection he'd picked up during surgery. He spent some weeks in and out of hospitals and had an in-home nurse tending to him. And on July 21st, he was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound at a Swarthmore, Pennsylvania home. There was no suicide note, and Garraway's nurse did not recall him being unusually depressed in the final day of his life. But he was depressed at his inability to resurrect a TV career, saying to friends and family, quote, I'm old hat, old news. Nobody wants old Dave anymore, end quote. His family conducted a private graveside service for him on July 28th in West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Washington section, lot 49. His third wife, Sarah Lee Lippincott, outlived him by 38 years. She died at age 98 in 2019. She is buried in the same plot. The July 22nd, 1982 edition of Today was mainly a remembrance of Garraway. Sidekick Jack LaSchooley, news editor Frank Blair, and former consumer reporter Betty Furness offered tributes on the show. Garraway's passing was noted on the NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw and Roger Mudd. Commentator John Chancellor was the man who replaced Garraway on Today 21 years earlier. And on NBC News Overnight, host Linda Ellerby closed her program with peace instead of her usual, and so it goes. Dave Garraway, 1913-1982, a television pioneer interred at West Laurel Hill. Astonishingly, he never won an Emmy and is not inducted into the Television Hall of Fame, although he does have two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one each for radio and television. Because of Garraway's dedication to the cause of mental health, his third wife, Sarah, helped establish the Dave Garraway Laboratory for the Study of Depression at the University of Pennsylvania. Anne Hollingshead Francine was destined to be a mainline debutante and matron, but she shattered the mold and then she beat the hell out of the mold maker. Her mother was Emily Errett Francine, daughter of a millionaire businessman, Michael Errett, who made his money in the building and roofing tar business, especially when he partnered with his Laurel Hill neighbors, George Widener and George Elkins. Michael Errett was born in 1838, and he was educated in public schools. He invented Errett's slag roofing in his early 20s. He later became an officer of companies supplying other building materials, Excelsior Brick Company, Vulcanite Portland Cement, Eret Magnesia Manufacturing Company, and many others. His business's profits exploded with the increased use of automobiles and the need for paved roads. He was a pioneer in the asphalt business. His daughter, Emily Eret, born in 1890, married Albert Philippe Francine, on April 27, 1912, two weeks after the Titanic went down. 
Albert Philippe Francine, 1873 to 1924, came from an old Philadelphia family that dated back to the early 1800s. His grandfather, Jacques-Louis Francine, 1798 to 1866, was a successful French immigrant. His father, after whom he was named, Albert Philippe Francine, 1840 to 1879, served with the 32nd Pennsylvania Emergency Troops in the Civil War and died at age 39 in 1879. An uncle, Louis Ramon Francine, 1837 to 1863, was a brevet brigadier general wounded at Gettysburg at the Peach Orchard on the 2nd of July, 1863. He died two weeks later in Philadelphia. Jacques-Louis, Louis-Ramon, and Albert-Philippe are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section Y, Lot 144. Albert's brother, Horace Hugh Francine, married Edith Mead in 1906. She was a granddaughter of General George Gordon Mead. Albert-Philippe Francine graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1894 and then attended Harvard University. He attained his M.D. from Penn in 1898. He specialized in infectious disease, especially tuberculosis, and became one of the world's authorities on this common disease. He did much original research and became the country's expert. He enlisted in the United States Army in 1917 and was discharged two years later with the rank of lieutenant colonel. After the war, he became the clinical director of tuberculosis for the Veterans Bureau. He passed away at age 50 in 1924 after a, quote, nervous breakdown, end quote. He left two young children. The boy, Jacques-Louis Francine, 1914 to 1988, became a pilot and an explorer. When World War II started in 1939, he joined the Royal Canadian Air Force, but transferred to the U.S. Army Air Corps in 1942. When the war ended, he had been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with two oak leaf clusters, three air medals, and four battle stars. He wrote a popular book called The Adventure of the Wild Swan. He died in his mid-70s in 1988. He and his father, Albert, are buried in Section V, Lot 102, at Laurel Hill Cemetery. And then there is the daughter of Albert Philippe Francine and Emily Eret Francine. Her name was Anne Hollingshead Francine, and she was born August 18, 1917, in Atlantic City. She was educated at private schools and made her debut to society on the 12th of October, 1935. She was a 19-year-old member of Philadelphia's Social Register when she first broke into show business. A new phenomenon had sprung up in the mid-1930s, the socialite singer. Look Magazine reported, quote, all over Manhattan, society girls are now singing and crooning into microphones. More than half the current singers in the expensive East Side cafes are socialites singing for champagne suppers, end quote. One of those clubs, Le Coq Rouge, ran a torch singing contest for amateurs, open only to, quote, post-debutantes, end quote. And Francine won, singing Cole Porter's Night and Day and two other songs, one in French. 
Her hometown paper, the Philadelphia Record, reported, quote, Contralto-voiced Anne sang her way into the hearts of judges and is going to give New York's cafe society an earful as well as an eyeful, end quote. She was reported in another review to be 5 feet 10 inches tall, plus wearing 3-inch high heels. Another review called her, quote, very much garbo, end quote. She stayed at Le Coq Rouge for a year, then played in such prestigious venues as the Persian Room of the Plaza Hotel and Les Ambassadeurs in Paris. She took singing lessons with Robert Fram and dancing lessons with Valerie Bettis and started to gain experience by touring with repertory companies during the summer when the clubs were closed. Her salary plummeted from $1,000 a week to equity wages of $14.75. Her mainline family flat out told her, quote, Anne, you're pretty embarrassing, end quote. She said, I had a little car. I'd take my own pots and pans and tin things, and I'd hit the woods. I'd get a room for $6 a week with kitchen privileges. And it paid off. In 1940, she took over the leading role of Eileen in the touring version of the Broadway musical Too Many Girls. Rogers and Hart wrote a new ballad for her character, You're Nearer, which she introduced. The song was interpolated into the score for the film version. You're nearer than my head is to the pillow. She made her Broadway debut in a short-lived comedy, Marriage is for Single People, 1945, and later starred in New York as Kate in The Taming of the Shrew in 1950. Her nightclub act, which during the 40s took her to London and Paris, as well as the top clubs in the United States, now incorporated some hilariously earthy humor along with the impeccably performed songs of Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, and the other great songwriters. Quote, Annie is outrageous, end quote. That's from the cabaret producer Irv Rabel. Her comedy is incredibly physical. Once I watched her perform, standing with one hand on the piano and the other hand on her hip, she could work the audience with just her head. Her hair had as much to say as most performers have to say altogether. She is one of the funniest people I know, end quote. In 1954, Francine had a featured role in the Broadway musical By the Beautiful Sea, starring Shirley Booth, and the following year appeared with Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontan in The Great Sebastians. Francine said, quote, The Lunts were so good to me that once as we toured from town to town, I decided to have a tea party for them on the train. Alfred loved good tea. I started heating the water and blew out every light on the train, end quote. 
In the New York production of Sandy Wilson's Valmouth, 1960, Francine starred as Mrs. Hurst Pierpont, contributing both pathos and comedy to the wistfully nostalgic trio All the Girls Were Pretty. But her favorite role was that of Vera Charles in Mame, 1966, a part she took over a few months into the Broadway run. Vera, the heavy-drinking, waspish, but loyal friend of extrovert Mame, had been created in the musical by the brilliant Beatrice Arthur, a hard act to follow. But Francine triumphed in the part and played it not only with Lansbury, but her successors Ann Miller and Juliet Prowse. When the show was revived on Broadway in 1983, Lansbury requested that Francine again play Vera. Four years later, Francine made her last Broadway theater appearance as the imposing dowager Mrs. Harcourt in a revival of Cole Porter's Anything Goes, starring Patti Lapone. Francine was less active in cinema, but had a role in Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits, 1965, and a telling cameo as a Manhattan Society hostess complete with black turban and long cigarette holder in the hit Australian comedy, Crocodile Dundee, 1986. If you saw Crocodile Dundee, you will remember Anne Francine. Oh, there's someone I want you to meet. <laughs> Sue, darling, you're back. Oh, wonderful. Man, how are you? Couldn't be better. <laughs> Tell me, who's the new man? This is the man I'm writing about, Nick Dundee. Something matter, darling? Oh. Uh, pleased to meet you. It's okay, he's Australian. <laughs> Maybe I'd better go there someday. Darling, I'm so glad you could come. Excuse me. Oh, just making sure. On television, she became well-known for her role in the series Harper Valley PTA, 1981-82, starring Barbara I Dream of Jeannie Eden and Lonesome George Goebel. One of only two series in television history, by the way, to be based on a gramophone record. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. The other was a cartoon series, The Elephant Show, based on the record The Chipmunk Song. Her returns to cabaret performance were always greeted with stupendous reviews in the New York newspapers. In the 12 October 1992 New York Times, there was a review of a show she did with Margaret Whiting. Quote, Miss Francine, playing her characteristic stage alter ego, a superannuated Philadelphia debutante, boasts that, quote, most museums are younger than me, end quote, and booms out a Marlena Dietrich medley in a foghorn basso profundo. Another review of the Times called her singing voice a gypsy foghorn. Jumping, jumping. 
she became a much-loved teacher. In 1992, she had a stroke, which left her unable to speak, but she continued to teach by pantomiming her commands or writing them on an erasable box designed for that purpose. The term force of nature may be overused, but it certainly seems to apply to Anne Francine. Anne Francine died on December 3, 1999 in New London, Connecticut. The coverage of her death was overshadowed by the death of jazz guitarist Charlie Bird and comedian Joey Adams the day before, and especially by the death of Madeline Kahn, who died on the very same day and shared many of her characteristics. She had no immediate survivors. She never married. She's buried with her mother Emily and grandfather Michael in the Eret Mausoleum, high up the hill on Millionaire's Row at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section K, Lot 334. I can find no examples of her singing at Amazon.com. Believe me, I looked. There are only a few examples of that marvelous bass voice on YouTube. There's a duet recorded with Angela Lansbury on one of her signature tunes, Bosom Buddy. The glorious The Man in the Moon, I just played you a section of that. You can look for them. And, of course, there's that cameo in Crocodile Dundee, which is worth pursuing, you know, just making sure. Cabaret performer, star of stage and screen, mainline debutante, and all-around broad, Anne Francine, 1917 1999. Eddie Lou Thompson Huggins, better known as Edie Huggins, was one of Philadelphia's most accomplished news journalists. She was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1935 and named after her father, pharmacist Edward W. Thompson. She started piano lessons early at the insistence of her mother and became an accomplished player by age seven. Eddie Lou was introduced to broadcasting at age 14 when she won a contest that gave her the chance to appear on KRES, a local radio station. Station executives were so impressed with her that they gave her a weekly Saturday evening show for teenagers, making her the city's first African-American disc jockey. The show lasted for three years. At Bartlett High School, she further developed her music talent, learning the cornet and marching with the band, as well as playing piano at church. While in high school, she was an honor student each year. She was refused admission to Home State University of Missouri because of her race. When she started college at the University of Nebraska, it was as a music major on a scholarship. She became the first African-American to be crowned Miss Cornhusker in 1954. But Eddie Lou did not graduate. She quit school when she married Air Force officer Hastings Huggins. After Hastings retired from the service, they moved to New York City, where he had a job with IBM. Eddie Lou went back to school and was graduated cum laude from the Plattsburgh State University of New York with a bachelor's degree in science. She worked at both Bellevue and Flower Fifth Avenue hospitals in New York City as a registered nurse after graduating in 1963. At the same time, she was doubling as an actress in the role of Nurse Spencer and a consultant for the NBC daytime drama The Doctors, which went on to run for 20 years. Edie said, I feel that my professional background in nursing gave me the edge over more experienced actresses in winning this part. I felt sure of myself when applying for the job, and this assurance paid off. 
Six months after arriving in New York to seek a career in show business, I had a part in a network show. She also had a small role in the 1966 movie, A Man Called Adam, starring Sammy Davis Jr., Ossie Davis, and Cecily Tyson. Although I do not find her name among cast members at the Internet Movie Database. Eddie Lou also appeared on The Edge of Night and The Love of Life, both produced by CBS Television. She was spotted on the soap operas by WCAU-TV Vice President and General Manager Bruce R. Bryant. In 1966, Bryant was in a New York restaurant when Eddie Lou, now divorced from Hastings Huggins, entered with her date, jazz drummer Joe Jones. Bryant recognized them and invited them to join him for dinner. During the conversation, he invited her to audition for the upcoming extended hour-long The Big News Team with John Facenda, which the station was planning. She won easily over the others and was offered the position with one change, her name. For years, she had been Eddie Lou. Now she was Edie. John, voice of God Facenda, always referred to her as Edith, which was not her name. When she arrived in Philadelphia, Edie was a single mother with two children and $65 in her purse. Interviewed years later, Edie stated that CBS hired her to compete against the then-local NBC affiliate KYW-TV, which had just hired its first African-American woman reporter, Trudy Haynes. Haynes, now 93 years old, continues to make occasional television appearances. Huggins was WCAU's first African-American female reporter, and she became legendary in her reporting. In the early 1970s, Edie and weatherman Herb Clark co-hosted What's Happening, a midday news program. From 1974 through 76, Edie hosted Morningside, a morning magazine show featuring interviews with celebrities and politicians, along with segments on health, finance, and entertainment. In 1975, she married her second husband, jazz pianist Ray Bryant. The marriage lasted until 1982. Other shows on WCAU included Horizons and Huggins Heroes, which focused on ordinary local people who had accomplished notable achievements, especially for the benefit of the larger community. Huggins Heroes became a weekly profile feature on WCA News broadcast during the 1990s and 2000s. And it highlighted Huggins' reputation as a reporter who focused on unsung heroes throughout the Philadelphia region. The Philadelphia City Council honored Huggins on her 40th anniversary at WCAU, by then an NBC affiliate, by proclaiming March 30, 2006, Edie Huggins Day in the city. Huggins is in the Philadelphia Broadcast Pioneers Hall of Fame. She was chosen by the Urban League of Philadelphia as one of the, quote, outstanding African-American Philadelphians of the 20th century. She was also honored by the Philadelphia Chapter of American Women in Radio and Television as Communicator of the Year, awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, and earned an award from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Edie was a founding member of the National Association of Black Journalists. Professionally, she was often cited by colleagues as a mentor and was affectionately referred to as Miss Edie by younger reporters and staff throughout the Philadelphia television news industry. 
In 2006, Edie Huggins was cast in the lead role in the independent film So Big. It debuted on May 3rd, 2007 at International House in Philadelphia. I find no record of it at the Internet Movie Database. Edie Huggins died of cancer on Tuesday, July 29th, 2008, at the age of 72. She left two adult children, a son, Hastings Edward Huggins, senior administrator for IBM in Mableton, Georgia, and a daughter, Lori, a marketing specialist here in Philadelphia. A longtime member of Bright Hope Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Huggins established a scholarship for women to pursue nursing, which continues as her legacy. She is interred in the Mausoleum of Peace, Niche 75, at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Edie Huggins, born 1935, died 2008. Sheila Allen Stevens. Sheila, spelled with two E's, and Allen Stevens, hyphenated, had the initials S-A-S. It could not have been more appropriate. She was Philadelphia's version of Oprah Winfrey. She spent more than 20 years on Philadelphia television and was larger than life. Yet when she died in 2016 at age 73, there was scant notice in the newspapers, only a small standard obituary. But during her time on the air, she was inescapable. Every pound lost or gained, every injury, every medical emergency, every brush with cancer, every surgery was proudly trumpeted over the airwaves. Sheila Allen Stevens was a New Yorker, but she became legendary on the air in Philadelphia after being hired by WCAU in 1977. Philadelphia Inquirer television critic Gail Schuster seemed obsessed with Sheila and virtually followed her every up and down. She talked about Sheila's marriage in 1984 to a Channel 10 cameraman in a September 1987 column, pulling no punches. Sheila had lost 80 pounds in 18 months, but she regained 25. Her husband, Lonnie Stevens, put on 58 pounds, but he had married at six foot one and 130 pounds. At the time, she was co-host of the popular Live on City line with Matt Lauer, who shortly moved on. Sheila was self-deprecating about her struggles with weight, saying, quote, I'm good from the knees down. From the knees up, I look like Dumbo's mother. If I could be anything, I'd want to be a sandwich, end quote. In March 1989, Schuster revealed that Sheila was on the verge of being fired. Maybe I'm overreacting. I'm one of the few people who likes to work at Channel 10. I, I may be the only one who likes to work there. I get to deal with people, no bureaucratic BS. Where else can I make this much money and have this much fun for this little bit of work? End quote. The columnist also admitted she was unpredictable and difficult to work with. In May of 1990, there was an article about how Sheila was confined to a wheelchair, quote, since her foot was trampled last month in a stampede at Donald Trump's Taj Mahal Casino Resort in Atlantic City, end quote. Schuster said, being off the streets is driving Alan Stevens nuts. And then in parentheses adds, it's a short drive, Sheila. Alan Stevens' most famous moment may have come in 1983 when Elizabeth Taylor was in town to perform at a play at the Forest Theater and stayed at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. Sheila reported from the scene she was standing on Broad Street and this is what she reported. Elizabeth Taylor 
are staying here at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. I was nice. I called up public relations and I said, can I have an interview with Miss Taylor? And they said, ha, ha, ha. I said, okay, how about somebody in security, somebody in room service, somebody who brings up the towels? They said, we're sorry, we have to protect your privacy. How private can towels be? Then I resorted to the only Philadelphia method I had left. Yo, Elizabeth, are you up there? Find that on YouTube. It's kind of priceless. In 1996, Sheila had a massive heart attack at age 48 while staying at Atlantic City Hotel. She came close to death. Gail covered it in her column. Sheila recovered and went on yet another weight loss program. By 2001, Alan Stevens was calling herself the bionic black woman. In December of that year, Schuster once again quoted her old friend, quote, the old broad's hard to kill. I'm a little nervous. This time she was recovering from a pituitary tumor. Three years later, her beloved husband and constant companion of 20 years, Lonnie Stevens, died. Sheila left Channel 10 shortly after. Despite her incredibly complex medical history, Sheila Allen Stevens lasted until 2016 when she died at age 73. There was very little fanfare except for those who knew and loved her. One of her best friends was Channel 10 weatherman Glenn Hurricane Schwartz, who wrote this about her shortly after she died. She survived breast cancer, three heart attacks, brain surgery, and diabetes. She told people that she had more than 25 surgeries in her life. She was as happily married as any person I ever saw. She would command any room she was in. People just gravitated toward her and she could entertain them for hours. She was the only person I ever heard of who won time after time playing video poker at the casinos. No one would believe it, but I saw it myself. She had one of the hardest jobs in TV and did it better than anyone to make people smile and laugh. Tragedy is easy, comedy is hard. She was afraid of no one. Who else would yell at George Clooney loud enough to get him out of his trailer for an interview? She yelled, they'll fire me if I don't get this interview, and it worked. She wore more jewelry at any one time than most women accumulate in their lifetime. She asked for everyone's birth date and remembered them all. She made amazing predictions based on her belief in astrology and believing she was psychic. Scientists don't believe in that stuff, of course, but I was speechless after some of her predictions came true. She was the most interesting person I ever knew. And the funniest, too. And now she's gone. I wish I could remember all of the amazing stories Sheila told about her life and all of the amazing people she met over the years. Many of us were skeptical of some of her stories and then shocked when we find it was true. Here's an example. Sheila was a very beautiful woman. When she was single, she was sought after by sports stars, celebrities, and wealthy men. One of them, she told me, was a member of the great Motown group, The Spinners. We wondered if it was more fantasy than fact. Years later, Sheila got tickets for us to see a Spinners concert in Atlantic City. First row, of course. I figured it was due to her big casino connections. Before the concert, she told me that Harry, the name has been changed to protect him, not only dated her, but had proposed to her in the middle of a live concert, and she yelled, No! Now, would you believe that? But after the concert, she took us backstage, and right into the spinner's dressing room, one of them saw her 
yelled Sheila and gave her a big hug. Harry was in another dressing room, and he hugged her too, but he wasn't enthusiastic about it. Decades later, he was still obviously hurt. No one could tell a story like Sheila. We sometimes went to her favorite restaurant, a soul food place called DeBros, at the Overbrook train station. It was a tiny place with only a few tables. Sheila commanded the table in the middle and would tell story after story. We laughed hysterically. So did the complete strangers who came in the door and were immediately asked very personal questions, and they would answer them, even if it was related to sex. And that person would sit down with us, continuing the conversation while waiting for their food. I once had a Saturday lunch there that lasted more than four hours and wasn't bored for a second. And then there was Lonnie. Lonnie Stevens was a Philly native. Sheila was from New York City. He was Sheila's designated photographer for all her stories and live shots. They got married in the 1980s and were together 24 hours a day for about 20 years. And they loved each other so much that they probably wished there were even more hours in the day so they could be together longer. While Sheila had multiple health problems, Lonnie was always in perfect health and amazingly strong and always smiling. Always. But in 2004, he was suddenly diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Lonnie, the love of Sheila's life, died only months later. Of course, Sheila was devastated. And even more than 10 years later, she still told everyone, I'm married just to a dead man. After brain surgery in 2001, Sheila told a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Gail Schuster, of course, I'm a dog person, but everybody keeps saying I'm a cat. I'm on my ninth life here. She managed to keep others entertained for another 15 years. Sheila passed away last week. I miss her already. Tribute from legendary Philadelphia weatherman, Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. Sheila Ellen Stevens is buried with her beloved Lonnie in West Laurel Hill Cemetery, West Lawn Section, Lot 430. For reasons unknown, her name is not on the stone. Now featured at Laurel Hill Cemetery, their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, an exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. The exhibit is on display in the museum at Laurel Hill Cemetery through Thursday, December 31st, 2020, and is open to the public Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The exhibit is free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time in the June edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's on with the show. Adam Forpaw was a horse trader who ended up owning one of the biggest circuses in America and had constant run-ins with his chief rival, P.T. Barnum. J. Fred Zimmerman and his partners controlled virtually every theater on the East Coast in the late 1890s and 1900s until their grip was broken by the Schubert brothers. And Edward Fry, impresario, who managed the Astor Opera House in New York City during its entire time, including the famed Shakespeare riots of 1849. <laughs>
Hills Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bella Kidwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October, and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year, or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your way across the property. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. All four of the people featured in today's show were contemporary enough that I could get virtually all of their information from not only contemporary newspapers, but some web articles. Each story was pieced together from several sources, most most of it newspaper articles, though. I could find no books or major magazine articles that covered any of them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>